Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome back to Total SF, Heather Knight, and our Dr. Bob Wachter episode. Thank you. It's good to be back, and with such a great guest, too. Yeah, Dr. Wachter, he's the chairman of the Department of Medicine at UCSF Medical Center, uh, a godsend on Twitter through the pandemic. He will talk about that. I mean, he, he's been um, giving us updates and, and, and a lot of truth through, through the pandemic. And now he's a host of In the Bubble, Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble, a very popular podcast. I'm going to ask you, when did Dr. Bob Wachter first come on your radar? I had never heard of him until he started tweeting a lot. I believe it was last spring after the pandemic um, really hit. And it was hard to know, like, how scared should we be? What was what were the numbers really like in San Francisco? Um, how bad was this? And he's just so straightforward, lots of numbers, lots of charts. and But still with a very um, relatable and overall up optimistic attitude, um, even though sometimes the numbers weren't that reassuring. I always felt better after reading his long, they're pretty long, um, Twitter threads that he does every uh, few days. And um, they're almost like, you know, a chapter in a book or something, but with charts and, and info. And I always feel better after reading them and more informed. It's such a surprise to me who my Twitter MVPs were before the pandemic and after. Um, before, it was, I don't know, maybe some celebrity or something. Now it's Dan Rather, Renell. <laughs> yeah, Rinell, you talk about Dan Rather all the time. Every podcast. <laughs> Renell Brooks-Moon is like... She's amazing. She's awesome. And Bob Wachter, if I could only keep five Twitter followers, he'd definitely be on it. And he's Would I be our, on it? You would definitely be on it, Heather. I'm not going <laughs> to cause trouble today. Um, but uh, our podcast guest today, it's a wonderful interview. We talk about San Francisco. We talk about um, we talk about San Francisco and how it's done in the pandemic. We talk about his first time in San Francisco. Um, he gets through our lightning round. And I'm super, super excited about his movie pick. I don't think we should give it away, Heather. <laughs> no, but but it, it's a great pick. It's a great one. Dr. Bob Wachter coming up. I'm Peter Hartlob here with Heather Knight, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Total SF, Dr. Bob Wachter, and uh, thrilled to have you here. Congratulations on the new gig. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. We know you're about the busiest human on the planet right now, so we thank you for making the time for us. Yeah, it's busy, but uh, the absence of traveling, it turns out, frees up a whole lot of time. So, <laughs> this is true. So, uh, but it, but the, there is a lot going on. You're the new host of In the Bubble, while Andy Slavitt is working with the Biden administration. Can you tell me how that happened? Um, I I was thrilled because I knew you were a guest. I've seen you on Twitter. And then suddenly, like, these two things that I like became one thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way, I, I've known Andy a little bit for a number of years from the time he was running the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and was really impressed. I just think he's a... Uh, it was interesting because he was a bureaucrat. He was running this, this uh, trillion-dollar agency, but managed to be a person. Uh, he was tweeting at the time stuff that I was saying, wow, that's pretty out there for, uh, <laughs> for somebody running a huge federal agency. 
And then after he stopped, I became an avid follower of his on Twitter and listened to the show once it started. And uh, we corresponded a little tiny bit. He had me as a guest on his show, which was kind of cool. And then it was just, wow, three weeks ago, I got a text from him and it said, can we talk? Uh, I have an opportunity for you. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And uh, got on the phone a few minutes later and he said, the Biden administration has asked me to come to Washington to help lead the COVID response and I need somebody to host my podcast. And he said, would you be potentially interested? And I said, I think it's it's fabulous. I like doing that kind of thing. And uh, so I, they vetted me because there's a production company that runs the podcast and they looked at me and several other candidates, I think. And uh, at the end of the day, they decided I might be decent at it. So I thought it was a great opportunity. It's, it's, it's busy, but it has a huge reach. Uh, I like learning things about COVID and I like talking to interesting people. And there's really no better... Uh, perch to do that. And it's also time limited. His his gig in Washington is, uh, he's has sort of a special appointment that can only last 130 days. So I kind of know when this starts, and I know <laughs> when it ends, and that, that makes it easier to find the time. Yeah. You also have been doing a lot of communicating about COVID on Twitter, and um, I find your Twitter threads a godsend, and I know that a lot of San Franciscans do just pouring over each one. How did those get started? And why did you find it important to go into such detail um, with city residents? Well, I think my first tweet was March either 16th or 18th. I can't believe we're coming up on a year. And uh, I remember the moment I was sitting in my living room. I've been on Twitter for 10 years and, you know, had 20,000 followers and did it, you know, just sort of did it around things I thought were interesting in my mm-hmm. My particular orbit was, which was kind of the way hospital care is organized, and I've gotten very interested in technology over the last several years. Um, and I remember one day I had spent the entire day on Zoom meetings uh, in my role at UCSF, and I had nothing to do other than think about the possibility that I might die. Uh, and it was sort of a funny moment because. If you remember, I think probably people all do, you know, this sort of existential dread that there is a tsunami and we're seeing maybe the top of a wave and we're going to get crushed. And I'm old enough to believe that I'm at higher risk. So there was sort of all of that. And then in my day job at UCSF, I run the biggest department at UCSF. I've got 3,000 people that work for me and, you know, it's a large enterprise. And normally I'm really busy every day in meetings and making a lot of big decisions. And I found myself with nothing to do, which was odd. And the reason was that once it became clear that COVID was coming, UCSF shifted to this command center structure, absolutely the right thing to do, which is a form of healthcare martial law. Basically, three or four people and spectacular people are basically put in charge of everything. And all of the usual hierarchies and the usual org chart gets thrown out the, the window. And moreover, we're not doing anything other than COVID. All decisions really are about how do we prepare for this. And so because I've got a fairly large leadership role, I was taking in an enormous amount of information, all of which was new and complicated and confusing. And I said, boy, I'm taking all this information. I'd like to do something with it that might be valuable. And so one night I just tweeted, here's what's going on. And I also did something that I figured I will, I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness later rather than permission, 
which is I, I would not betray any confidences. I wouldn't say anything that somebody told me in confidence. But I was hearing about here are the numbers. Here's how many patients we have in the hospital. Here's, you know, as testing began here, you know, here's some of the ins and outs of testing. And I said, you know, I'm going to just tweet that out there. And um, uh, UCSF, I don't think it decided at that moment whether it wanted to be that transparent, but I kind of decided for us that I would be. <laughs> and, and, I, and I know the general organizational position is to be open with the community. And, you know, it was one of those where I tweeted out a, a thread with, you know, a series of here's the numbers, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I'm seeing. And uh, I, I think it was on, on uh, whatever the, the, that Zuckerberg movie where they kind of looked at, the, at the, the counter at the bottom and all of a sudden it was spinning yes. around the, the number of likes, which normally you tweet something and four people like it and one of them's your mother. And this was like, it's, it is like flying around hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands. And I said, wow, that's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's something here. And so I just kind of decided then to use Twitter as a mechanism for for me to sort of take in, in information that I thought people would be interested in and put it out there, hopefully in a forum that people found useful and comforting. It was sort of pre-misinformation and conspiracy theory time. It wasn't like I was out there trying to combat misinformation, but I thought that there was this vacuum where people just felt like, I need to know what's going on, I don't understand this, and they were looking for trusted sources, and I felt like if I could be one, that would be a good thing. Had, had you always thought of yourself as a communicator, I mean, a doctor and a communicator, because it seems like there's a through line to all of this, uh, uh, the Twitter and the bubble. And I wondered if you if you found, you know, you had a gift for that early, if you thought about being a journalist at one point, um, what, what about you and, and, and being a communicator? Well, my wife is a journalist, and <laughs> she has told me that I'd be decent at it. So that's <laughs> high praise. That's valid. That's That's high praise. And she's very, very good at it. Your um, wife is Katie uh, Katie Hafner, Hafner so Katie, Katie and... was on staff at the New York Times for many years and now freelances for the Times and the Washington Post and a few other places and and she is uh, she's spectacularly good at it and we have a uh, unusually good relationship in which we're capable of editing each other and not killing each other uh, although as you may know I, I on the podcast I talked about this with Katie last week we're now having a challenged relationship because I am now vaccinated and she is not. Oh. And that leads to some potential conflict, uh, particularly when I told her, I, I woke up from a, from sleep last week and she said, how'd you sleep? And I said, I slept the sleep of the vaccinated. And that, <laughs> Brutal. And that kind of pit, that pissed her off a little bit. That, uh, was, but, that was, by the way, the most... Ad- I mean, I've listened to all the in, in the bubbles going way back, and oh, that is probably in the top three most adorable episodes. Um, and oh, and you're you. you're going against uh, Andy Slavitt and his son son uh, yeah, Zach. Yeah, his son and his dog. Yeah, Andy, <laughs> Andy and his family are very charming. Is she critiquing uh, you? Is she Katie or yeah, or, Katie. or or uh, or or Andy Slavitt's wife? Uh, Katie uh, <laughs> critique. She's a very gentle critic in general, although in written form, uh, she's pretty tough. I mean, she's got an incredible BS detector and, uh, you know, she just hates cliches and all that. But she's, she's and she's doing a podcast too now, uh, interviewing uh, people about their wonderful mothers. And so she's <laughs> listened to it and she, and, and she likes it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how it got started and, and uh, have, have I always been a communicator? 
I was the news editor for my high school radio station, WKWZ in New York, that broadcast at, at 10 watts, which meant you had to be in the high school parking lot to hear it. <laughs> um, and then I was a political science major in college and was on the debate team. So, and I've been a politics junkie forever. And in my day job of running the Department of Medicine, I, I see communication as being a critical part of of doing a job like that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think the bottom line is I like, I like, dig and I'm a generalist, uh, you know, both sort of genetically and my, my clinical work is as a generalist and my research is sort of a mixture of policy and technology and ethics and clinical medicine. So I like complicated issues that people care deeply about. I like trying to understand them myself. I like learning and talking to people and, and, and doing that so I can understand it. And then I feel like if I can understand it, then I can explain it to someone in a way that might be helpful to them. I've written three books that are kind of crossover books where they're about medical topics, but they're written for the lay, uh, for the lay public. So yeah, it's, a, it's something I like doing. And I have to say COVID, uh, if it weren't so terrible, uh, and it is, would be the most interesting issue I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just has, it, it has everything. It is, it's medicine, it's politics, it's policy, it's economics, it's racial justice, it's sociology, behavior. Uh, and so trying to make sense of it and trying to keep up with the fire hose of information and then digesting it and putting it out there in a way that people find useful is just immensely gratifying. Um, I I think you do an excellent job, and and the I knew it was going to work when someone went through a couple of acronyms pretty early in one of your shows, and you stopped and ex had them explain what it was and everything. Oh, it just seems yeah. like you're a natural for it. Do you remember your high school? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to just throw this out. Your high school? Did you have a sign on or sign off or for your uh, high school radio station? <laughs> I didn't. I don't remember that, but I do remember sitting there with the little strips of of, of tape, you know, and 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 having my razor blade and cutting the tape and putting the scotch tape of them together. That's how we used to edit uh, broadcasts. And I I also one of the seminal moments of that uh, when I was news editor, uh, freshmen would come in and say they'd realize that they could land some big interview. It was it was a it was a feather in their cap, and uh, and so. I remember walking into the into the sound studio at one point, and a freshman was there, and he said he was uh, on the phone, and he said, "What time do you expect the Shah to return?" He was trying to call the Shah of Iran, <laughs> 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 and, and of course, we didn't have the budget to handle the long distance phone bill at the time. So it was really it was it was a lot of fun, and I uh, you know the camaraderie of journalism is great, and I've always had deep respect for what journalists do. It's a tricky job, and. In many ways, they many of them are generalists. That's what Katie is, and probably what you guys are too. You have you might have a beat, but you're always out there trying to learn about a topic from experts and digest it, and then uh, and put it out there for other people to to understand the world better. So to me, that's a pretty cool part of part of the world. We'll be right back after this short break. Well, I wanted to ask you about San Francisco. Uh, um, if you remember the first time that you came to San Francisco and, and how you ended up moving here. Yeah, I think the first time I came was when I was 15 on a cross-country trip with my parents. And I remember it being absolutely glorious and uh, going across the Golden Gate Bridge and 
having that kind of that wow feeling the way I did with the first time I saw the Eiffel Tower. It's, you know, it really was that magical. Um, I'm a bit of a golfer, so I remember playing Pebble Beach at the time and just being astounded that a golf course could be that, that, that glorious. Uh, so that was, that was my experience back then. I grew up in Long Island and went to college and med school in Philadelphia at Penn. Uh, it was not in my worldview to move to California, to live in California. But when I applied for residency after medical school, there was a, a now defunct airline called Eastern. And Eastern had a ticket that for $600, you could fly anywhere in the country for a month. And uh, that made it free to come out and take a look at UCSF. UCSF had and has a reputation of being one of the handful of best medical centers and training programs in the, in the country. And I really thought this was going to be uh, you know, a little two-day mini vacation in December. Uh, the chances of me uh, wanting to come to UCSF were akin to the chances of me wanting to go to medical school in Thailand. I mean, <laughs> it, was just, it was not my life plan. And I spent the day here, and at the end, I realized I wanted to come here. And it was, it, it, it's an astoundingly good program. Uh, the mix of the clinical experiences is unmatched in terms of being at this big university hospital, the VA, and particularly now Zuckerberg, San Francisco General, is incredibly good. But it was the culture that wowed me. I, I, I said, wow, people are every bit as good as any place I've ever seen in the, in the country, but they're nice and they're normal and they're mellow. And it's just, it's just you take up, you, you plunk a very high-powered, prestigious academic medical center in San Francisco, and it just chills it out a little bit and, and makes it surprisingly normal, and people are not pretentious, and they're not competitive with each other. It's, it's, and I've been there now forever, and it's, it's all true. So at the end of a very long day, my poor mother, who thought Philly was too far from New York, and I'd come closer for residency so she could do my laundry, uh, I called her up, and I said, hi, Mom, and there was a pause, and then she said, damn it, you love it. <laughs> And she started with the earthquake stuff. And <laughs> anyway, I, I, I ended up coming, and I really did think I'd come for three years. Uh, and then I would move back to the Northeast. And that was 37 years ago. That's wow. the way life works out sometimes. Did you ever consider moving, or are you a lifer? I think I'm a lifer. I, um, ne I, I've interviewed for a few jobs over the years, and about five minutes into the interview, I usually sit there and say, this is silly. I, I love living here. I have a really wonderful, incredibly privileged life here. Uh, two of my three kids are here. Uh, my wife likes living here. And I have not found a place like UCSF. I mean, it, 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 the reasons I came in the first place are the reasons I've stayed as a, you know, to, to work with the quality of people I get to work with that smart, that interesting, that innovative with those values. The, uh, and, and they're nice and they're normal and they treat each other well and they treat patients well. It's a soulful place. It's, it's really pretty special. I, I think people in San Francisco have a sense of that and maybe more so over the past years. But because we don't have a football team and an undergraduate campus and a business school and a law school, I, it tends not to – people don't get it as much as they do other kinds of places that are full-service universities where a health science is only – University, but it, it's really a very special place. So I think I'm stuck here. <laughs> and what are your favorite things about San Francisco and your least favorite? Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm looking out my window and seeing the bay now. I, I think living in a place that is this physically beautiful is 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 quite wonderful. Uh, I, 
I love the fact that people are really accepting of each other and you know different choices and lifestyles are are all are all good and uh, that's that's really um, I, I, I like how charitable people are with each other I think that's a kind of defining characteristic I you know love eating and the restaurants are 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 just great uh, I live in Noe Valley, and I think it's really a remarkable neighborhood. It's just so, it's just beautiful and and uh, and diverse in in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, I'm I'm an outdoorsy person, and I mostly golf. And it's really you know being able to do outdoor things all all uh, all winter is pretty terrific. Having grown up in the Northeast, I don't take that for granted. Um, and I like, you know, feel quite lucky that two of our three kids live here. So that's, it's nice to have family, uh, family around. What don't I like? Sometimes the politics gets a little bit too far out there for me. <laughs> and, and, uh, we could do a whole episode I, on that. I'm sure we could. <laughs> uh, 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 so, uh, sometimes, sometimes it, it pushes some buttons. I, you know, the homeless problem is, is, you know, it is terrible on the face of it when you think about those poor people and the lives that they're living. Uh, but also just as a, you know, when I have out-of-town guests come in and they see see the homelessness and they say, well, what is going on here? And I don't have a great answer for it. You, you, you would think we would be able to to do better on that. And it, it, it's really, it's an embarrassment and it's a scourge. And I don't want to overemphasize sort of what it feels like to look at it because it's obviously worse for the people that are that are are dealing with it. But uh, it's something that we should do better on. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm in the archive right now, the Chronicle archive, and I've dug around and saw how we did during the 1918 influenza. We did great in the beginning, and then they blew a whistle and everybody threw their masks away, and then it came back, and we had problems. And, and it, it, looking back, it's not a real proud moment for our city. I'm wondering now, and, and is it too early to call it, but it, is, is that different for the Bay Area through this? How do you feel about how we've done? And are we at a point where we can feel proud of, proud of ourselves for what we've been able to do so far? Yeah, uh, we have had a remarkable uh, uh, I mean, performance makes it sound like a show. I mean, it's is real life. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. get any realer than that, as as they say about San Francisco General. Uh, but uh, we have performed remarkably well throughout the pandemic. Is it too early to call it? Um, it, it probably a little bit, because we could be in for another hit, depending on the way these variants go. And the reason I'm a little uh, be a little sheepish to call it is you might have said the same thing of LA three or four months ago. You might have said, look how well California has done and California had done extremely well. And then LA got clobbered uh, over the last three or four months. So we're not out of it till we're out of it. But at least up until now, uh, you know, the number I have used a fair amount is that there have been 324 deaths, maybe a couple more today in the city of San Francisco since March. So we're talking about a year. Uh, you know, each one is a tragedy. But if you look at our per capita death rate, which is 37 per 100,000 people, that is three times lower than the second place city uh, when you look at deaths per capita. The, 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 the cities that, are, that have done reasonably well are at numbers like 80 or 90 
per 100,000, and other big cities are more on the order of 150, 200 per 100,000. So that, that gets a little blurry when you think about all the numbers. One way of translating it is there have been 440,000 people who have died of COVID. That's larger than the population of Oakland. If the entire country had mirrored San Francisco's per capita death rate, uh, I don't think we would quite be at 100,000, meaning about 300 or so thousand uh, people would be alive today if the country had done as well as San Francisco. Uh, so, you know, it's still a lot of deaths, it's still terrible, but what could have been if we, uh, if we mirrored the rest of the country is many, many fold more terrible. And I, you know, the, the, why there are some reasons that are intrinsic to San Francisco, but I, meaning that yes, it's a reasonably wealthy city. Yes. A lot of people work in tech and can work at home. Uh, a lot of people have, you know, have the privilege, including me, to have spent a lot of days on Zoom and a lot of nights on Netflix, and not everybody has that that opportunity. Those are real, uh, and yet there are other places that have economic advantages that have gotten creamed. Uh, people sometimes say, "Well, the weather—you know, people—you didn't have to spend the winter inside. They didn't have to in Los Angeles either, and they got creamed. They didn't have to in Phoenix or in in Houston." So there are a lot of things that you can look at and say those are natural advantages, and the comparisons are apples and oranges. But I actually don't think that's mostly right. I think what what is mostly the main explanatory variable is when I look out the window for the entire pandemic, people are all wearing masks, and people are keeping their distance. People are doing the right thing. The mayor, the city health officials have given us good guidance and people have generally followed it. There has not been a huge amount of pushback. Uh, you've, I've heard not heard in San Francisco. I'm sure I'm missing some narratives, but I've not heard it's a conspiracy. It's a hoax. Who are they to tell me I can't do this? It's my right as an American not to wear a mask. I think people have generally, you know, our politics are reasonably homogeneous. Uh, and that has served us well here. I think people have kind of taken it seriously. We've been asked to do the right thing. By and large, the people of San Francisco have done the right thing. And the proof is in the pudding that has saved tens, tens of thousands of lives. One of the biggest arguments in San Francisco right now when it comes to the pandemic is the matter of public schools. And you probably heard that today the city, with the backing of the mayor, uh, filed a lawsuit against the school district and the school board trying to compel them to open classrooms as soon as possible. And Heather broke that story, by the way. Thank oh, you. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Good scoop, Heather. Thank you. Um, thanks for the plug, Peter. But um, just wondered, you know, UCSF doctors, including yourself, have been saying for months that it's by and large um, safe to reopen with precautions in place like masks and distancing and hand washing. But the teachers uh, union is, is not buying this. I was wondering um, where you fall and if you think the city's public schools should open. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I think the schools have been the hardest issue of all in, in all of this. Um, you know, there, there were other issues we were debating along the way, you know, masks and do you clean the mail and testing and all that kind of stuff. And to me, they weren't all that complicated. Um, you know, some of them were simply math problems or a question of do you understand the science? Schools are really hard. And they're hard because you know both arguments have 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 merit. There's just no question that as a society, the cost being borne by the kids is enormous, and particularly underprivileged or, or and kids and from communities of color and uh, 
that that's real. But I think for all the kids, the the price of keeping them out of school is enormous, and we will be paying it for decades in terms of what they've lost over the over the past year. On the other hand, keeping a school open if you're not able to uh, maintain the the health precautions is is risky. And so there's, you know, the question is what the sweet spot is. And I, I think early on we didn't really know, and it was prudent to keep the schools uh, to keep the schools closed. I think now we're smarter about this. And we know that the younger kids particularly are reasonably safe. We know that you can keep the schools open if you have a really good and aggressive program of distancing, masking, and testing. And we know that uh, a lot of this depends on the the amount of virus in the community, meaning that, that you know, I think a blanket statement that we should keep the schools open under, under all circumstances is wrong, but I think a general statement that we should try as hard as humanly possible to keep the schools open, get them open, keep them open, and to do that, we are going to spend some money, and money is going to be on testing, it's going to be on masking, it's going to be on distancing, it's going to be on creating hybrid models. Uh, uh, and that we will do it if the prevalence in a community is below a certain level. And I see, I would say San Francisco has mostly been below that level. With all of that, I think the right thing to do is to get the schools open. And, uh, and the question of sort of how teachers feel about it, I get if I was a teacher, I would be worried about, you know, being in an environment that was unsafe. But I think what we know is it can be you can create an environment that is safe for the teachers and safe for the students. And to me, it's an essential business, you know, I, when I'm taking care of patients, I go into work and I wear a mask and wear, and, and we figured out a way of keeping healthcare workers safe. I think we can do the same for the teachers and I think we owe it to our students. Great. Well, we like to end, um, even in a global pandemic, we like to end on a uh, lighter note and a San Francisco note too. Heather has a lightning round <laughs> that um, <Okay>. everyone, <laughs> everyone from Mark Benioff to Hunter Pence to London Breed has um, made it through it. So um, I was hoping you would uh, agree to the Heather Knight lightning round. And, I will uh, try. <laughs> yeah, go, go, okay. go for it. <laughs> it's very serious questions here. This is probably the hardest one. Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Uh, there's, uh, I, the, I don't even know the name. There's a place on 24th and uh, Sanchez that, that is terrific. They have a uh, carnitas bur- burrito that's wonderful. Nice. Right across from near, near Holy Bagel and uh, near the Whole Foods on 24th. You'd be surprised how many people don't know the name of their favorite burrito shop. I'd say it's, it's about it's 30 a, to 40 it's percent. It's a sad, it's a no, sad it's problem. Good. Yeah. You're used to going there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you got closer. A lot of people are like, that place in the mission, which does not narrow it down right. at all. <laughs> what is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Uh, probably Sister Act because I lived in you know in the neighborhood uh, right while they were filming it and just seeing Whoopi Goldberg out there and just seeing what they have to do to 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 make a movie and how they had to basically close church and you know for two blocks for like four months to film thirty minutes of video it was was pretty remarkable. We love you for saying that. We are going to send this snippet to our former editor in chief Audrey Cooper, who's now in New York City and despises Sister Act and thinks we're oh, ridiculous please, for liking it. Please, like yeah. weirdly dislikes oh, this movie. Glad, glad she left. <laughs> Where's your favorite place in the city to get a stiff drink? And you can think back to pre-pandemic times when such things were allowed. 
Oh, um, uh, boy, I'm, 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 I'm freezing on names of places right now. The, uh, the place that's sort of, it, it's a restaurant uh, down like off Pacific that is like an old speakeasy. Do you know which, they have lobster, pasta, um, Oh, it's. I want to go there now. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's that. always. It's rated in one of the top. It's, uh, yeah, we should find our, our listeners will tell us. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it it's just a beautiful. It, they have murals there. They often have piano at uh, night. It's just been so long since I've been there. Like my brain is frozen. Yeah, <laughs> I know the feeling. I've, I've I've reached that age, but um, uh, that place is wonderful. It's just and terrific food and great and really kind of clever drinks. And do you remember your first concert? I think my first concert, I grew up in Long Island and Billy Joel was from oh, there. Yeah. So I think my my first concert was was hearing Billy Joel somewhere on Long Island and doing Piano Man oh, and, and, and those sort of things, which was great. My most memorable concerts were one of the 47,000 times I saw Springsteen. <laughs> Big but, uh, including Including New Year's Eve, oh, which wow. was just uh, oh, absolutely great. magical. Awesome. What was the last book you read? Uh, that's... What was the last book I read? The last book was uh, a book about COVID. Unfortunately, Ugh, that does not <laughs> uh, sound like so nice. Sorry, I was uh, interviewing the I was interviewing the authors uh, for the uh, Commonwealth Club, and it was a book about sort of COVID in in the context of world history. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty good. What are you most looking forward to about the end of the pandemic? What is something that you're not allowed to do now that you really want to do? Travel. Uh, you know, I, I, I saw my parents are 90 and 84, and uh, I did go and visit them in August when the virus was pretty at a pretty low level everywhere. And uh, but I haven't done that since. And my dad's on hospice mm-hmm. and uh, and just, you know, he I, I don't know exactly know when he will pass, but sometime in the next year, certainly. And the idea that I'll never see him again mm-hmm. is really hard. So yeah. uh, I am now fully vaccinated as a frontline healthcare worker. So uh, I'm getting to the point where I'm almost comfortable doing it again. I'd like the virus level to come down a little bit to do that. But I, that's the, and I also haven't seen my son and daughter-in-law who live in Atlanta mm-hmm. for, a, for a very long time. So those are, that, that that's sort of, there's not even a second place over the things I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And last question, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Uh, uh, a double mocha. Because uh, I've realized as an adult that even though I don't like coffee, if you put whipped cream and chocolate in it, it actually is quite good. Um, I pretty much read the Times every day and uh, and read much of the Quran every day. Um, I wish I could say exercise, but uh, it depends. If I have a Zoom meeting that I can go turn the video off, then I will do some exercise and lift some sort of trivial amount of weight while I'm, <laughs> while I'm watching. Um, and actually making sure I get enough sleep. I, I'm a basket case if I don't get seven hours. Yeah. So so that's kind of a, a must do for me. I usually sit down and read the paper, you know, in bed with uh, on my iPad at night. And I, that, I'm pretty religious about doing that. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, it's really fun to talk to you. And you survived the lightning round. Yeah. Thank and, you. <laughs> and, and thank you so much really for, for all the updates. It has brought um, something that's very, you know, in, in rare supply at times right now, which is a little bit of peace of mind and yeah. and, uh, and to be educated from someone who's so thoughtful and able to, thank you. to, to say it in words that, 
don't make me feel like uh, I don't know what's going on. I just greatly appreciate it. And oh, um, looking no, forward nice to more you. in the bubble. Too. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's nice of you guys to say. And thank you for what you're doing to keep us informed and educated. Really appreciate it. And we have to, I have to look up that restaurant. That's going to kill me. Uh, restaurant San Francisco Speakeasy uh, Bix 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 of course Bix I think we're going to include that in the episode so uh, with that yeah. thank you, you wanna, for coming if you, on if you, if you want to if you want to paste in uh, Bix into where <laughs> I was babbling about exactly it's amazing the way the human brain works I, I could can triangulate on about 93 things about it but I just could not get the name so I yeah I think Bix we're just going to we're going to do this with every episode so that everybody listens till the end so. yeah exactly <laughs> that's the way to do it Thank you for coming on Total Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Heather Knight and our guest, Dr. Bob Wachter. Total SF is a production of The Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod. <laughs>